You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible, I would highly encourage that you pull one out from the seat back in front of you. Maybe there's one under the seat in front of you and, uh, and, and open it to Mark. Mark is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Uh, it goes in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And so uh, I'd love for you to have a Bible to see God's Word for yourself because uh, God's Word is powerful. God's Word is how God speaks to us. And, and we're going to spend some significant time today looking at God's Word in Mark chapter 11. As we enter into a new chapter in Mark's Gospel, we're also entering into the third section or act, as we have called them, uh, in this account of Jesus' life, which means that in our text today, we're going to see Jesus enter Jerusalem, which in the book of Mark, he hasn't done so far, at least not the way that Mark has recorded the story. He has in, in, in his life, but, but in the way that Mark has re- recorded the story, this is where it's all going to go down. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem, and, and I just want us to think about, there are a lot of notable ways that we can enter a place even today, aren't there? Um, I just want to see if you can identify some of these cues. We probably don't have them on the uh, on the audio like we are, we're going to, so I'm going to have to do this um, myself. Uh, uh, so let's see if you can identify these cues. Who's entering? The president. Right, right, right. All right, how about this one? Who? The bride. The bride. Okay, how about this one? Um, let me think about it. Do I know this one? The pomp and circumstance. The graduates are entering, right? You get the point. Okay. So, you know who is entering by the song that is played. Not only that, you know what to do when each of those songs are played, Right? In almost all of those circumstances, you, you stand in honor of the one who is entering. So, so the first couple of notes for each song are meant to immediately cause us to, to perk up our heads and almost instinctively rise to our feet. They're called a change. Whatever you're doing now, and pay attention because the guest of honor is entering the room. And so today, as we, we, we turn to the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is entering into the heart of the nation of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem. And as he enters, his people are singing his song, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the song of our King. And as we read it today, it it should awaken us to the truth that our King has arrived. But even more than than standing to our feet, and even more than singing some words or making some ritual gestures, we must be prepared in our hearts to be totally transformed by this promised, anointed Savior King who is entering in, who is drawing 
near. And so here's how I would hope that we would all respond to this sermon today, this text today. Uh, As Jesus draws near and enters in, let him change everything. As Jesus draws near and enters in, let him change everything. See, the Lord wants to, to draw near to you. He wants to enter into the heart of his people, the church, and he wants to do a radical work of change in our lives. And so as we launch into this final section of the book of Mark, I'm calling us today to give Jesus full access to our hearts so that we would experience his total life transformation. Sometimes I think we forget that that transformation is what Jesus is all about. It it can be so easy to just kind of bounce from religious experience to religious experience. It it can be so easy to just just say, uh, you know what, we all sin and and therefore, you know, my sin is just no different than anybody else's. And so, uh, you know, I can just continue on in it. But Jesus wants your heart. It's good to come to Jesus as you are. But he doesn't want to leave you as you are. It's good to recognize that we are all sinners in need of grace, but it's not okay to use that as an excuse to continue on in habitual patterns of sin. See, Jesus came as the Christ, the promised anointed Savior King. He is the Son of God in human flesh. And that truth, when fully grasped, will change everything. Now, Mark has spent a lot of time building up to this third act in his book. I had a map up there for you, but, you know, we don't have that, that, uh, and the guys are doing such a great job, like, trying to deal with that today, but um, remember that Mark has, has organized his gospel like one big journey carried out in three acts of a play. So, so he started in the north, in, in the origins of Jesus' ministry, in, in Galilee and the Decapolis up in the north of Israel. And, and in that section, he was all about revealing the identity of Jesus. You remember that? That was like the beginning of this year that we studied that. He's the one who has authority over sickness and demons and nature and everything else in all of creation. And then Mark took us on a journey through Israel uh, from, from an er- the area up north of Galilee all the way down to Jericho in Judea just outside Jerusalem in the south of Israel. And, and on that journey, Mark was clarifying the identity of Jesus for us. He clarified that that Jesus came as the suffering Messiah who would die and rise again. He clarified that following this Messiah meant losing your life to find it in Him. We all need to go on that journey with Jesus. And now in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. The time has now come to prove His identity. So Act 1 was all about revealing the identity of Jesus. Act 2 was all about clarifying the identity of Jesus. And Act 3 now, Mark proves the identity of Jesus. Jesus does the work he promised to do. It all plays out like he said it would. He is who he says he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Now up until this point, 
Jesus has been relatively secretive about his identity. Although the crowds following him have, have grown massive, they're, they're kind of on to him. They, they've been making it difficult to keep his messianic secrets. But here in Mark chapter 11, Jesus lets it all go. He makes his big entrance. He makes his big debut. Which means that the heat is about to turn up. The, the winds, they are a-changing. And people had better get ready because it's about to go down. Read with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let, they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As Jesus draws near and enters in, let him change Everything. Today we want to prepare our hearts to let Jesus change four major factors about our lives. And the first is this. Let him write the script for your service. Let him write the script for your service. This is probably a, a very familiar passage to those who have been in the church for a while. Uh, this is the event that we traditionally refer to as Palm Sunday or, or the triumphal entry you ever hear of that, kids? Like, this is where we, the kids all get their, you know, palm branches out. And... Personally, I've heard this story my whole life, but, but to be honest, I've always had a hard time with this first part. Like, why is that there? It just seems so strange. Why does Jesus send two disciples from Bethany to Bethphage to get this cult, and, and why can't like, why can't he just get a colt in his own town and do it himself? And why does he have to be quite so cryptic about it? Like, like I just feel like we're talking in secret codes here. But like, when the man asks you, why are you taking the colt? You say, the Lord needs it. Wink, wink. Like, Jesus is literally writing the script out for these guys. And it just seems so strange. But here's what's going on. The gospel writers, Mark included, are revealing that this entrance into Jerusalem is part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Jesus is purposeful as he comes into Jerusalem. He he has a sovereign, foreordained plan. He has already written the script. And I love how how Peter defines the activity of Jesus in this last week of his life in Acts 2, verse 23. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Uh, Sinful men at the end of the week are going to be responsible for killing him, but Jesus is the one writing the script. He, He knows what is about to happen to him in Jerusalem. Just like he knows where to find a donkey that's tied up in a neighboring city. Just like he knows what his disciples need to say when they get there. Jesus is in control because he is the Christ, the Son of God. Not only that, but Jesus knows where he is at in the greater unfolding drama of redemption that has been working out for ages past. When Jesus asks for a cult, he is getting ready to fulfill a string of prophecies and imagery and foreshadowing that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. At the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the patriarch Jacob is blessing his sons. Remember Jacob's other name, the name that the Lord changed it to was Israel. This is the origin story of the nation of Israel, God's people. And when he gets to his son Jacob, his third son, fourth son, sorry, he he prophesies that a king will be from Judah's lineage. By the way, Judah is also called a lion in that verse. That's where the lion imagery that we sang about earlier originates. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Jacob says to his son Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. This is right in line with all of the other prophecies about the Messiah so far. And so we've got to ask the question, who is the him? The him is the ultimate king. In other words, the the true kings of Israel will come from the line of Judah, and there is one coming from Judah's line who will be the ultimate king. But then Jacob adds this little picture to his prophecy. He says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now Jacob is picturing a time in the future where there's great flourishing that is the direct result of the reign of the ultimate king from Judah's line. The king is represented here by a colt, an unbroken animal that kings would ride in times of peace. And that colt is bound to a vine. And throughout the scriptures, the nation of Israel is is described as a vine. The king is bound to his people, and that vine is therefore experiencing great abundance. Here it's pictured by wine flowing as wash water, coloring the robes of the king. Now that's what everybody in the crowd thought was about to happen 
right after this event. But we know, because of what Jesus has clarified for us so far in the book of Mark, that his robes must be stained red for another reason first. He must suffer and die. And the wine must represent something else first. The blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sin. There is no flourishing for the people of God unless the king's robe is first soaked in blood. And the people must first be freed from their sin before they can experience the abundance of the Messiah. Now this prophecy in Genesis 49 sets off a string of other prophecies and imagery and events throughout the Old Testament, such as David putting Solomon on his own donkey and parading him through the city as the next king. In the Old Testament law, there's, there's something holy about beasts of burden who have never been used before. And then there's this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. This is the one that probably most of us are familiar with. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah is saying to the nation, Jacob's prophecy over Judah will still come true. And so here's my point in explaining all of this to you. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he tells two of his disciples to go to the next town and to find a colt that is tied up and to bring it to him so that he can ride it into Jerusalem. He is revealing the next part of the story that was written before the foundation of the world. And through this action, Jesus is about to announce to everyone who has been following along so far that he is the Lion of Judah. He is the one who has come to deliver God's people. But he is also coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, at the same time, that this is happening, lambs from Bethlehem were coming into the temple, temple to be blessed by the priest for the Passover. And Jesus would be sacrificed on Passover as the ultimate spotless Passover lamb to end all sacrifices. And he would be placed under the winepress of God's wrath for our sin. His garments would be soaked in blood so that we could receive the abundance of of His grace. And through His story, we can see that God is working in real time and space to prove that Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb, the Christ, the Son of God, who we have been waiting for. Now, we can still see this purposeful plan unfolding through all of this, but we can still leave us asking, but why this way? Why this way? Why does He send two disciples to do it this way. And this is the beautiful truth that we see again and again throughout the Scriptures, that God has already written His story, but He has also written His people into the script. He has given us a part to play. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are not at all in conflict with one another. 
They are in perfect harmony. And even in this little errand of, of, of picking up a donkey, there's an incredible opportunity to serve the king and his kingdom. So I just want you to put yourself in, in their place for a moment. Imagine Jesus tells you to go to another town and untie some guy's donkey. Would that be hard for you to obey? Does that sound like sticking your neck out a little too far? It's likely very difficult if we really put ourselves in that position. But you will do it if you really believe that Jesus is the king and therefore gets to write the script on the way that you serve him. When the king says, go into town and take a donkey from the guy you don't know, you do it. And you do it confidently because you come in the authority of the king. Who's going to mess with you at that point? Now, imagine being the guy watching his donkey being taken. And some other guy you don't know says, the Lord has need of it. We'll bring it back. Sure, sure. Do you, do you let him take it in the moment? It might be hard to part with your beloved vehicle or piece of farm equipment that you haven't even gotten to use yet. But when the king says he has need of your donkey, you give it. And in doing so, you let Jesus write the script for your service. It's in the little acts of obedience that, that, that our stories are intertwined with God's bigger story and we get to serve his kingdom in meaningful ways. Maybe, maybe it's some little mundane thing that God has, has called you to do. For example, making church gatherings a, a priority. And maybe you begin to wonder, like, does God care about that anymore? Like, does he really, like, does he really want his people to gather anymore? Does, it's been going on for like 2,000 years. Who really cares? But then he uses you in the life of another believer to encourage them and to point them to the hope of the gospel. And you realize why God said, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Maybe it's a little bit bigger than that for you. Maybe the Lord is calling you to, to do something that seems really scary, really vulnerable. Maybe it's this challenge that I've been putting before our church all year to tell at least one other unbeliever about the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, when the Lord says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you, true disciples don't say, yes, yeah, that's not my personality. I just don't do stuff like that. I think I'll pass. No, no, true disciples trust him, get equipped, and then live sent in the authority of the king. They learn the script of the gospel, and then they tell it to others, wherever Jesus places them. Now, maybe your next step in that is to get more equipped, and we have Christianity Explored training coming up on September 17th. That's a way that you could just get equipped in that sort of thing. But you can't blame it on your personality or your busy schedule or whatever else to not tell others the good news of Jesus. Maybe the Lord is impressing upon you that you need to serve in a certain type of ministry role that just feels scary to you. And he's calling you to step out into the unknown and you've just been kind of like pushing it back like, I don't know. He's calling you to step out into something like these guys have to do when they go have to untie a donkey. 
If Jesus is really king and he really has a definite plan, then he has a place for you in that plan. And so take the next step. Talk to the ministry coordinator. Start actively participating in his sovereign plan. Maybe the Lord is calling you to sacrificially give of your resources for the sake of his kingdom like the guy with the donkey did. Whether that's in in general offerings or giving to someone who is clearly in need or supporting Solanco Neighborhood Ministries in their building campaign or supporting our building fund or or some other way of, of using your resources like opening your home to your neighbors so that you can tell them about Jesus. If Jesus is really the king, then all your stuff is his stuff to use anyway. Let it go. Don't withhold good when it is within your power to give it. Don't try to escape the kingdom call to generosity by coming up with a million ways why why it would be unwise stewardship to do so. Jesus fulfills his ultimate story by writing us into the script. And as we obey him, he changes everything in our lives. I believe Jesus wants to use all of us at Oak Hill this fall. And I believe he's calling many of you beyond what you would typically find comfortable. He's calling you to take steps of faith into the unknown of serving him because that's where you encounter Jesus. So these guys are called to go get this cold and bring it to Jesus. And and they do, and and they bring it back, and immediately Jesus jumps on it and rides into Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the crowds uh, who have been following him, some of them probably since Mark chapter 2, are like, whoa, this is happening. Now is the time. This must be what Zechariah prophesied. And so they start throwing their cloaks, first onto the donkey to give him a saddle, then onto the ground. And then when that isn't enough, they they go get branches from the nearby fields and and they start throwing them on the ground. And like, what's going on here? Well, just like John the Baptist prepared the way for the king and his kingdom in Mark chapter 1, they are literally preparing the way. And as they do, they're giving him full permission to have his way in their lives. Here's the second way we must get ready for the transformation of Jesus. Let him walk on your cloak. Let him walk on your cloak. Now that might sound weird to you at first. Take off your, to take off your cloak and, and lay it on a donkey and, and lay it on the ground and get trampled. Like, is that what you're asking us to do? Listen, this is essentially the, the equivalent of, of rolling out the red carpet. They're preparing a level path for Jesus to ride on. And this is exactly the same thing that, that the people did in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 9 when the Lord repla- replaced the wicked king Ahab and anointed Jehu to be king in his place. Jesus is the better Jehu whose kingdom of light is overtaking the kingdom of darkness. And if anyone deserves the red carpet treatment, it's Jesus. There's hardly even a thought given here that this is a no-brainer response to the Messiah entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Let him walk on your cloak. Now these cloaks were important possessions for these people. You had one, maybe two. But that's it. And that means that after the donkey trampled all over your cloak, 
and maybe left a few road apples behind. You didn't have the dry cleaners to go to. You, you couldn't just stop in at Target and buy another cloak. Th- these people are giving their finest to be totally spent by the king. It's as if they're saying, who cares about my cloak? Who cares about the way I look? The king is here. Symbolically, they are saying, Jesus, you have the full privilege to walk all over me because you are king. Now remember that that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. He's entering in humble and riding on a donkey. So he's not going to abuse us when we give him the right to walk all over us. He does not lord his authority over us as the Gentiles do. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the posture of the crowd is absolutely correct. Jesus deserves the preeminent place in our lives. He deserves to have full say about how we live and what we do and how we use our stuff. And so when I say, let him walk on your cloak... I mean, stop caring about how dirty you will get when you give yourself to Jesus in absolute surrender. When I say, let him walk on your cloak, I mean, get your heart to the place where the only thing you care about is the good news of Jesus getting to where it needs to go. When I say, let him walk on your cloak, I mean, humble yourself and pursue the lowest place like Jesus has been calling us to do all summer long in our study of the mark. When I say, let him walk on your cloak, I I mean take extravagant measures to honor and participate in the mission of Jesus. When I say, let him walk on your cloak, I mean live like you actually believe that Jesus is the promised anointed Savior King who came to die on your behalf and rise again. I'm not saying that the people in this crowd believed all that full gospel at this moment. In fact, they believed far less than the gospel. All they knew was that Jesus, the Messiah, was was on the move in some powerful way, and they wanted to be a part of that. And their expectations, they were a bit off the mark, but their praise was accurate. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. And those who went before and those who followed after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Not only do do we need to let him write the script of our service and walk on our cloak, we must also let him win our allegiance. Let Jesus win your allegiance. These crowds are all in on Jesus right now. And you may have heard preachers in the past talk about how fickle the crowds are here. They praise Him on Sunday and they yell, crucify Him on, fr- on Thursday, Friday. But with all due respect to those preachers, I think they're wrong. We have good reason to believe that when you put all the gospel accounts together, that this is a totally different crowd than the one that is standing before Pilate on Friday 
yelling, crucify him. This crowd is, is primarily from outside Jerusalem. People came out from Jerusalem who were, who were following him as well. But the other crowd seems to be made up of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And so this crowd is likely filled with people who have been hanging with Jesus for a long time. They've seen his works, they've heard his teaching, and they are convinced of who he is. And that's why they're singing Psalm 118. It's a psalm of ascent. It's sung every year by pilgrims going up to the Mount of Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple. But now it has a whole new meaning. This, this is Jesus' version of, of hail to the chief. And now again, the people have over-realized expectations about the results of this triumphal entry. Most of them are, are picturing his, his ascension to a political throne to overthrow Roman oppression, that sort of thing. But, but he's actually getting ready to be lifted up and die. He's getting ready to rise again and be seated even higher than they are currently imagining at the right hand of the Father. And so in reality, their praise is more fitting than they could possibly know. They say, Hosanna, which means God save us. And that is exactly what he came to do. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is exactly who he is. And he deserves every ounce of their praise. But then notice this. This is one that we sometimes miss. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're acknowledging what the blind beggar acknowledged in the last scene, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Son of David, who will reign forever on David's throne. And they are acknowledging that his kingdom is better. Unlike the Pharisees who, have, who had compromised on the idea of a kingdom in order to maintain their status with Rome, the crowd had devoted their allegiance to Jesus. Now, like I said, they did not understand all that that means, but I want you to understand that their view of Christ's kingdom was not too high. It was far too low. And they wanted him to, to set up te a temporal earthly kingdom that would set them apart from the kingdoms of this world. Jesus actually came to set up a cosmic, eternal kingdom that would be far above the kingdoms of this world. And if their view of Christ's kingdom was far less, how much more should we devote our allegiance to his eternal kingdom? I think we often miss this when we, when we talk about the gospel, that, that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down the good news, they did not only acknowledge and honor the king and his work, they emphasized the superiority of his kingdom. Mark records that Jesus' gospel preaching ministry went something like this. The, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The apostle Peter, when he preached the gospel at Pentecost, he said, this, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Peter is using kingdom language. And it's in the context of Jesus being hailed as the greater son of David. One more, when the Apostle Paul 
talked about the gospel. He said he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The idea of kingdom is critical to living in light of the gospel. It's critical to our understanding of what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to make our lives better as we devote ourselves to the kingdoms of this world. Jesus came to give us a whole new way of life and a whole new kingdom. And the gospel is the good news of the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of this world and over the kingdoms of darkness. And belief in the gospel is a declaration of our allegiance to a new kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom, is the song on the lips of every person who is awaiting for the return of our King Jesus. He will fulfill everything that those people expected that He would in His second coming. And that is our blessed hope. And so as you get ready for the the transformation that Jesus wants to bring in you and through you this fall, do you believe that His kingdom is superior to the kingdoms of this world? Do you believe that his, His ways are wiser that His thoughts are greater, that His decrees are more righteous, that His grace toward you is more precious, that His heart toward you is enough. I firmly believe that a right perspective of Christ's kingdom is essential to navigating this life as a believer. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we could succeed in earthly kingdoms. He went to the cross to do battle with the enemy of our souls and win on our behalf. And so walking as a, as a disciple and telling others the good news of, of Jesus is not just this little game that we play. It, it's our participation in an all-out war that is waged between two kingdoms kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son and so sing the songs of the king in his kingdom exalt his praise louder in your words and in your life now what is interesting is is that the singing crowds quickly dispersed and we get what appears to be this this very anticlimactic moment so like the 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 it's like this, this whoosh that goes out of the, the scene. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there in verse 11. Look, look down with me at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As Jesus draws near to you and enters in, here's the last way you must let him change you. Let him wreck your status quo. Let him wreck your status quo. Why do I, I say that here? Where, where do I get that from verse 11? Like Jesus is just in the temple. He's just looking around. And then he goes back to where he came from. What's up with that? Well, what is Jesus doing when he goes into the temple? He's observing the wickedness of the money changers whose tables he's about to overthrow the next day. 
He's witnessing the spiritual poverty of a nation that bears no fruit like the fig tree he will curse the next day. He's preparing for the next phase of his plan to begin. He's preparing for this war to to heat up. And this section of Scripture that we're studying today, as it sits in this place of the book of Mark, is meant to stir around in our hearts and get us ready for that same work. We should be thinking about the same types of transformation that Jesus is thinking about in that moment. Ultimately, Jesus is getting ready to wreck the status quo of everyone who would follow him. Just like he will overturn tables in in the temple the next day, he's going to overturn all of the arguments of the religious establishment through the upcoming scenes in the book of Mark. He's going to ask them question after question to test them. I'm sorry, they will ask him question after question to test him first, and and, and he will come out shining. He's going to be untouchable. And then he'll ask them question after question, and they will be found without excuse. Not only that, within the next week, Jesus will overturn the crowd's expectations about the way the Son of David would establish his kingdom. He will teach his disciples a a new timeline of events that has never been revealed before. He's going to explain what to expect for the rest of salvation history in chapter 13. Ultimately, he's, he's not going to kick Herod or Pilate off their thrones He's not going to start a riot or a human war. He's not going to end the era of Roman oppression or restore the kingdom to Israel anytime soon. Instead, Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to buy many out of the kingdom of darkness so that they can be part of the kingdom of his beloved son, of the beloved son. He's going to pay for their sins by his own righteous blood so that His righteousness could be applied to them and so that they could walk in the newness of life that He provides. And in doing so, He's going to overturn the very way that His people relate to Him in covenant. See, I I think too often we expect Jesus to come in and maintain our status quo. We expect him to affirm our desires, to bear with the same old excuses that we make. We expect him to to tweak us a little here, a little there, make us a little better, but we don't expect him to wreck shop. Listen, Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to keep things going the way they always were. He came to wreck our idols and replace them with the true worship of God. He came to to call us to repentance and faith in Him. He came to correct our thinking. He came to demonstrate that our sin is, is so offensive to God that the Son of God would have to die a horrible death to bear our curse for us. And he came to give us a whole new life from the inside out, a life that looks just like Jesus. And we must be ready, eager, 
for Jesus to bring about that repentance in our lives. Every time we open His Word, every time we cry out to Him in prayer, every time we step out in obedience, every time we face a trial or hardship, every time we experience opposition, every time His way seems different than our way, every time is an opportunity for us to pray, Lord, change me. Lord, change me. Are, are you ready for that? Is, you, is your heart in a position to say, Lord, I am ready to enter in and have you wreck my status quo? I'm ready for you to become the centerpiece of my heart. I'm ready for you to come into the temple of my heart and, and look around and see what needs overturned. I'm ready for you to meddle with my schedule and my money and the ways that I've always done things. I'm ready to give up excuses for, for not obeying you. The, the way I say things like, like that's just not my personality or I just don't do things like that. I'm ready to, to let go of my script and, and start reading off your script in the way that you want me to serve you. I'm ready, Lord. Gonna let you walk all over my cloak. I'm ready to give you my total allegiance, all of my affections, all of my devotion, all of my dependence. I'm ready, Lord, for you to change everything for the sake of you, your glory, and your gospel. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.